0: Think with me for a moment about things with which you need a little bit of help. First example from Pastor Todd's bag of tricks. Plumbing. Do you um, need a little help with uh, plumbing? Pastor Todd definitely needs help with plumbing. So it looks to me like this piece. Oh, see, I'm getting better as I age. That piece attaches right there. Screw it together. And Charbonneau, you have a something. Not, oh, it probably goes that way, right? You have the, the little thing that you screw on the bottom there. And so, this, I think, goes on the bottom of a sink. And uh, I had a bad experience with one of these, maybe um, 15 years ago. The uh, dishwasher in our house decided to quit. And so we were so broke at the time that we had to save up our money to buy a dishwasher. We had to save for months to uh, have the money to buy a dishwasher. So much so that by the time the dishwasher arrived, we couldn't afford to have a professional in to install it. Famous last words. Somebody say famous last words. So Pastor Todd says, no problem. Plumbing, I mean, how hard could it be? Turns out it could be pretty hard. (laughs) Took me 10 and a half hours to uh, install the dishwasher. It's not my fault though, because the second I tried to install it and to connect the plumbing, the 50 or 60 year old plumbing in our house, it was copper plumbing I think. I'm not sure what they make it out of, some kind of metal. And it broke and so I ended up having to re-plumb the whole sink by hand. And so that's the first time I met, is this called ABS, Rich, is that what this is called? ABS plumbing. I'm going to need a little help with that. Uh, Maybe you are the same. Oh, this one's going to be super fun. Do you like this? Do you remember when Sesame Street used to do this back in the day, Carrot Top had a whole routine? Mascara. Now. If, if you were to ask me, like I don't even know how to open it. I'm tr- oh, there you go, I figured it out, okay? So this is a very strange, this, like this might as well be a substance from Mars as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't even dare do it. I'll probably poke myself in the eye. So you're supposed to look down, right? Is that what you're supposed to do? Look down, and then, oh yeah, it's not that hard. I don't know if on the outside. Can you even see it? Maybe it's showing up on the camera. And then you try. I'm just going to do the one side. I don't know if it turned out. I'm sweating so much. I'm probably going to end up with like black marks in a few minutes. You know, I'm, I'm not very proficient in the mascara department. I'm going to need a little help with that. Maybe uh, you're the same. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, you like this. This is fun. Cooking. How many of you can cook, like cook real good? Even those of you, if you're like a good cook, wave at me like with pride in your heart. Like I can cook. Okay, so now let's be honest. How many of you, it's like not exactly your favorite thing. Anybody here? It's like, I don't love it that much. See, I I applaud your honesty. I can understand. When I was um, newly moved out of my parents' house, um, I could cook craft dinner and spaghetti sauce. My mom had taught me to cook spaghetti sauce. Oh, I could also cook stir fry. So we basically lived on those crazy muffins from Costco. You know those muffins that are like, I think a thousand calories each. We lived on those muffins and the bagels and cheddar cheese, craft dinner, spaghetti and stir fry. But um, you may know some people. There are some people here in this room. I see my friend Rich is here tonight who are wonderful cooks and um, I have friends who are so good at cooking that when they come even to my house um, or when we're say we're on vacation somewhere and um, I should be the one who's cooking I always defer to them because they are I love to say everything they make is better than anything I make because when it comes to cooking I'm going to need some help how many of you know what this last thing is without me even pulling it out. Any guesses, $10 to the one who guesses what Pastor Todd has in his bag of tricks. The, oh, I almost held it like the business end up towards the camera. That would not be good. This is the actual um, plunger from my house. This plunger has seen a thing or two that shall remain nameless. Do you get some of the plunging duty in your house? This is something they don't tell you in how to be a man school. Right? Nobody ever told me that when I got married, it would be my job by default to be the plunger person. And the first time you ever use a plunger, it's not that easy. Nobody ever told me that when you set the plunger, you actually have to do a bunch of small little pumps so it establishes suction, and then and only then will it start to do its job. But no one ever helps you with the plunging. Have you noticed this? That was like, dad, something's wrong with the toilet. Is it wrong because of you? No. Who did it? I don't know. It's interesting, right, that nobody ever knows who clogged the toilet. But um, everybody always knows whose job it's going to be to unclog the toilet because when it comes to unplugging toilets, my family is going to need some help from me. Maybe uh, you need a little help today. How about um, some help figuring out your place in the universe? Do you remember the phase in your life when you're trying to figure that out? Where do I fit? What's my job? What's my unique contribution? Have you settled on your unique contribution to the world, by the way? Maybe don't wave at me. It might be a little bit embarrassing. But think about it. I think it's really important to know what God has uniquely called and gifted you to do. Why are you here? What has he gifted you to do? Why are you on the planet? What's your place in the universe? Maybe somebody helped you with that. Maybe think about the person who helped you figure that out. Are they coming to mind right now, even as I mention it? Your mom, your dad, your uncle, your aunt? Maybe a football coach? Maybe a dear friend? Interesting, right, that sometimes your peers can raise you. My parents raised me, yes, but through my 20s, even now, into my mid-40s, there are a group of uh, men and women who raised me. We kind of grew up together, had our babies at the same time. We all got married around the same time. And I think it would be fair to say that... Well, I don't know, what do you think? At least half the things I know how to do, I learned from that group of friends. They helped me find my place in the universe. You're going to need a little help with that. How about some help when hard times come your way? Certainly, you can identify with this. We're living in the midst of difficult times. I don't know about you, but um, I find myself often frustrated throughout a typical week when the things that used to be just normal and easy are no longer that way. I find myself getting frustrated with lines. I was waiting today in a lineup outside a store and I found myself thinking, is this really necessary? And I know cognitively that it is. Oh, funny story. The bathrooms are also closed. I'm talking about bathrooms because I was just introducing you to my family plunger. But uh, what do you do now that all the bathrooms are closed? I I just, I end up sneaking into like places behind buildings because there's no washrooms open. And I was thinking, this would be very, very bad if Pastor Todd got arrested because the bathroom was closed at Mountain Equipment Co-op. All right, hopefully you're laughing. Some people are laughing here. You're not laughing as much tonight as I thought you would. Maybe it's the heat. Blame it on the heat. Hopefully you're laughing at home. What do you need some help with? We're living in difficult times. What do you do when hard times come your way? Well, um, today I want to suggest that you turn to the words of King David out of Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let me give you a little background here on Psalm 54. Psalm 54 was written um, to give an account of the time when David was on the run from Saul, and he was in the region of Ziph, which was an area in the tribal region of Judah. So Judah was one of the tribes of Israel. Um, it was, of course, the tribe from which David sprang. It was a tribe from which the kings of Israel eventually sprang. Zeph was a region in the region of Judah. And David is fleeing from Saul, who was the king at the time. And he's trying to kill David because David's following is getting bigger and bigger. And Saul is fearing for his throne. And so David runs to the region of Zeph. Now remember, Zeph is a region in Judah, and David is from Bethlehem, which is in the tribe of Judah. So the Zephites, the men and women who lived in the region of Zeph, were kin to David. They were, in effect, his country people, his kinsmen. They were from the same tribe as him, so he would have expected that they would have given him shelter. So he runs to Zeph to try and hide from Saul, but that evening some of the people from Zeph go and tell Saul that David has taken shelter in their region. They rat him out. And so Saul rolls down from Jerusalem and he hunts David in the hill country in Zeph. And he almost catches him. In fact, the account is um, in the book of 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter, I forget the chapter right now as I'm preaching to you, but the account includes a sequence where basically Saul's men are climbing up two sides of a mountain where David is hiding. He's completely surrounded, he's trapped, they're about to catch him, and then at the 11th hour, a messenger from Saul's army comes to Saul and says, King Saul, King Saul, the Philistines are raiding, you have to go and stop them right now. So at the 11th hour, when he's just about to finally capture David, he has to leave to fight the Philistines. And so David is kind of saved by the bell, if you will. So that's the background for him when he writes Psalm 54. He's in a very desperate situation. And I want to ask you today, are you? Maybe you find yourself in a desperate situation. So I have some things for you to keep in mind. If you need a little help, if you find yourself in a desperate situation today, this sermon is for you. First thing to uh, keep in mind if you want some help is to ask yourself this question, am I truly desperate? Are you really, really desperate? Look at verse 1, oh God, cries out David. Oh God is one of the cries that kind of springs involuntarily from the heart of people when they find themselves in deepest trouble. Have you ever done this? A car swerves into the lane in front of you oh god you scream as you swerve away your child runs to the edge of a dock and they can't swim yet oh god you scream as you race to catch them before they fall into the water maybe you've been hiking and there's a cliff nearby and somebody you know slipped and almost fell oh god you cry out maybe you found yourself one time with a storm rolling in and there was nothing to do but to cry out to god for help oh god this is what david cries out in his moment of desperation. Oh God, don't miss this. This is a cry of desperation. I I loved this as a young man. It was one of the proofs I used to use when arguing the existence or non-existence of God with my teenage peers. I always said to them, why is it every time something terrible happens to you that you call upon a God in whom you do not believe? Oh God, there's nothing like a little desperation to drive you to your knees. And here's what I want to leave with you today from this first point. Nobody comes to their senses until they are at their wit's end. Is that you? Are you nearing your wit's end? How long are you going to hold out? Can't we be very stubborn as people? Can you relate to this? Have you been in a season in your life when you just hold out and you hold out and you tough it out and you tough it out and you refuse to repent and you won't bow the knee to God because you know that the moment you do, your whole life has to change and you're just not in the mood. Nobody, nobody, nobody comes to their senses until they are at their wit's end. Maybe this is for somebody you love. Maybe you need to stop bothering that somebody that you love and just leave them be and let them come to their wit's end. So I'm here to tell you that nobody repents until they are desperate. Nobody calls out to God for help until they have no other choice. If it's true that um, at the end of yourself, as my friend likes to say, you find the beginning of God, then maybe a little desperation is just what the doctor ordered. Next time you find yourself in desperate straits, use the difficulty of that moment to drive you to Jesus. You're welcome. Take home point number one. You can use desperation. You can turn it into something productive if your desperation turns you to God. Of course, this will mean that um, you've, point number two, fully admitted that you can't save yourself. This is a crucial one. Verse one, oh God, save me. How many of us linger in difficulty because we don't want to admit we need saving? Like last week, somebody say touche. Does that hit hit close to home? We linger in difficulty because we don't want to admit it. Two years ago, sailing to Toronto with my friends. Very fun thing to do on a sailboat if you're sailing slow enough is to throw a bunch of lines off the back, leave people on board, of course. Don't do this under autopilot. And then take turns diving off the back of the boat, and then grabbing the line as the boat rips past you and letting the line drag you behind the boat and then using your manly or womanly strength to drag yourself hand over hand back to the boat where you grab the ladder and climb back on in victory. This works great when you're 24, not so much when you're 44. (laughs) And I was completely shocked to find myself dragging behind my sailboat unable to help myself. But, numbskull that I am, wouldn't you know that I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, till I almost drowned. I was bound and bent that I would not let nature defeat me, until I let nature defeat me, waved my hand to my friends, and said, "Ha!" help. I literally, literally cried out for help. And so they stopped the boat and dragged me in like the dead fish I almost was. Don't let yourself almost drown before you ask for help. You're also welcome. Take home point number two. Maybe today's the day to admit you need help. Can somebody say amen in this house? Help your preacher out. You know, maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day you admit that you need saving. And, uh, you know, once you admit it, make sure that point number three, you call on the right name for salvation. Remember Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights? How many of you love Talladega? Don't be ashamed. Wave at me if you love Talladega Nights. I love Talladega Nights. If you haven't seen Talladega Nights, watch it. Unless you're super religious, then don't watch it. But Talladega Nights is awesome. It's hilarious. It's a little bit crude. And the hero is a guy named Ricky Bobby. He's a NASCAR driver and he's an idiot. And he finds himself as an idiot in an idiotic situation where he's about to crash his race car. And like I just said, he calls out for help. But the joke is, Ricky Bobby doesn't know who to call to, help, to, to, call to for help. Remember the scene? He's about to crash and he starts crying out for help. Help me baby Jesus. He goes on, help me Tom Cruise. <laughs> help me Oprah. Help me Jewish God. Right? He's covering all the bases. This is funny because it's true. And it's sad because it's true. You have friends, I have friends. Do you feel this? It's about to happen. They're living their life like everything's fine and good until it's not. And the second they find themselves dragging behind their figurative sailboat, unable to save themselves, what do they start doing? They start flailing. For who? Anyone that comes to mind when they should be calling on Jesus. Okay, by the time you decide to call for help, make sure, receive it, make sure you're calling on the right name for salvation. Oh God, verse 1, save me by your name somebody say hallelujah hallelujah in this house for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved acts 4 verse 12. friend I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the name you need I know it because I've experienced it and I know that as you watch me you may not believe it but I dare you to try i dare you today as you find yourself at the end of yourself to call out to jesus for help like king david did and to say oh god help me jesus christ god the son made flesh the man who was god in a body who went to the cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins who rose again for your salvation he is the one you need he is the answer you have been looking for I know that you've tried almost everything else. Wouldn't you try some Jesus today? Wouldn't you try some Jesus today? Call out to Jesus. Say to him, Jesus, I don't even fully know what I'm saying, but I am calling out to you for help. I'm at my wit's end. I'm dragging behind the boat like that preacher just said. I can't help myself. I've tried everything else. So here at the end of my rope, I call out to you today for help. Save me, Jesus. Come into my life and make me yours. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Begin from this day forward to teach me what it means to learn to love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy you all the days of my life. Friend, if you just prayed that with me, you now belong to Jesus. You're now one of his people. Your life's about to change in ways that you could never imagine. Welcome to the family of God. Jesus is the only answer you ever needed. Jesus is the only answer you will ever need. And once you come to Jesus, don't you ever allow yourself to forget His mightiness. Look at um, verse one, part B, and Nick, you can bring me that cloth. Vindicate me by your might. I was going to try to not use the cloth, but I'm sweating so much, the salt is stinging my eyes. So, uh, there you go, a little peek behind the curtain. Verse 1, part B, vindicate me by your might. Point number four, I want to invite you to make sure that you haven't functionally forgotten that he is mighty. Functionally forgotten that he is mighty. Here in the Hebrew, save me by your might means, save me by your mighty manness." Let's just pause for a moment to enjoy the greatness of that phrase in the Hebrew. All right, let, let's smile about it, even if you're kinder and gentler. Let's just enjoy the fact that that's what it literally says: "Save me by your mighty manness." Did you ever watch the um, World Strongest Man competitions? Anybody but me? Wave at me if you ever watched The World's Strongest Man. Okay, good. We watched it a few times. Pretty. They're, they're always named Thor or Ragnar, right? I don't know what it is about living in Iceland or Greenland, but those dudes are jacked. I mean, they are strong and they are mighty and here's the point. Receive it. They image God in their mighty man in the same way that a woman images God when she nurses her newborn baby to life in those first few weeks after delivery. We tend to think that God is either or, depending on your proclivities, depending on your preferences, depending on your political leanings, you tend to think God is only soft, gentle, and nurturing. Or you tend to think, no, 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 no. God is only strong, mighty, and uh, manly. And yes, the power just went out, but we'll uh, keep recording. Devin, do you want to just check the cameras? I will remember exactly where I was, don't even worry about it. You get to be here and watch us do this live and in the moment. What I find really interesting about these beasts of a man, as I see them, you know, pull cars or lift rocks or take trees and carry them from, you know, one race point to the next, what I find amazing in their strength is that they were made that way by a god who is also that way that's why i say that they image god in their mighty madness have you allowed yourself in the midst of your trouble to forget that god is mighty i'm here to remind you that when your world is falling apart sometimes you don't necessarily need as the first thing a snuggle and some milk there are times when you need a snuggle and some milk. Can somebody say amen? It's true, we all need those moments. But sometimes you need a mighty man to stand up and wreak havoc on your enemies. And that's exactly what David is saying here. Save me by your mighty manness. So let me remind you, Next time you find yourself in dire straits, in a very profound moment of need to call on your mighty man, God, for help. The reason I use the term functional forgetfulness is because um, it seems to me as I watch the world around us, it seems to me as I watch the way in which many of my peers and in fact, sometimes myself, the way in which I respond to trouble is I try to fix the trouble myself. And so every time I try to fix the trouble myself, I am acting as if I have functionally forgotten that God is the mighty one, that God is the one who has both the power and the authority to fix everything that ails me. And so when I step into the fray, I am stepping into the place of God. So do not allow yourself to functionally forget that God is mighty. I know that some of you are guilty of confessing that you believe in a mighty God while acting as if you do not. Okay, if that's you, today is your day to repent. Because let's be real, point number five, if you've forgotten that he's mighty, you might have also forgotten that he's meant to be your friend. Let's uh, read verse 3 together. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Strangers, ruthless men. What's interesting here and, in fact, offensive here about these strangers is that these strangers were actually, as I said off the top, David's kinsmen. They're members of his same tribe. And yet they are the ones who have risen against him, adding insults to injury. They are ruthless men who do not set God before them. It's important here to um, wrestle with this in the Hebrew. Here it is in the Hebrew. Do not set God before them. Lo samu Elohim kenegdam. So let me break that down for you. Lo means no, so they have not. Samu means they have put so lo, not, put, they have not put, Elohim, God. They have not put, God kenegdam, before them. But that word kenegdam is the key to understanding what is implied here. Hebrew is a language of implication. And what is implied here in the Hebrew takes us right back to Genesis chapter two, verse 18, when God, looking upon his friend Adam, says it's not good for him to be alone. I will make for him a helper, Suited to him, or fit for him, in the Hebrew, that I will make a helper fit for him, reads this way. And listen for that same word. What was the word? Kenegdam, right? Kenegdam. Lo samu Elohim kenegdam. They did not place God before them. Aselo ezer kenegdo. Ase, I will make lo for him ezer a helper kenegdo like him. But literally, when God says, I will make a helper fit for him, he is saying, I will make a helper that can stand face to face and go toe to toe with him. That's what kenigdo means. So when David says here that they have not set God before them, He's literally saying that they have forgotten that they are meant to be face-to-face, toe-to-toe kind of friends with God. And my dear friends, this is true of you. And if you stop being face-to-face and going toe-to-toe with God, you're acting like a stranger. So uh, don't be a stranger. Why? Well, because he's the help that you're looking for. That's uh, point number six from verse four. Behold, God is my helper. The Man, receive it. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. That's why I called this sermon Helper God. Meet your wingman. This is a simple point, okay? Very, very simple. It's God that you need. Reach for him today. The beauty of the gospel is that even as you reach For God, he has already reached for you. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us, the scriptures teach us. So when you are reaching to God, know that he has already reached to you. God is what you need, reach for him today and never forget, point number seven, that he is keeping score. We get this out of verse five, part A. He will return the evil to my enemies. This is very refreshing. Who will return the evil to your enemies? He will. He will return the evil to your enemies. You don't need to keep score, and you don't need to waste any more time trying to get even. I mean, somebody say amen. That's God's job. That's God's job. Is that for you today? I know it's for somebody. Have you been wasting your life keeping score? I mean don't say it but if that's you say it in your heart touche that's me that's me preacher i've been wasting hours days weeks years of my life keeping score is this for you today have you been wasting your life trying to get even isn't that one of the ugliest things you see in the world around you when people spend their life force trying to get even They give the energy of their days to try and settle, to try to settle scores for themselves. You don't have to do that anymore. That's God's job. But you're thinking, well, shouldn't somebody be uh, fighting for what's right? Yes. And his name is Yahweh, the death killer. We get this from verse 5. Read it with me. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. You know what this literally means, taken from the Hebrew? In your faithfulness, put an end to them. In your truthfulness, exterminate them. Sometimes the Old Testament is very strong. David here believes that it's consistent with God's character to exterminate his enemies. In your faithfulness, in your truthfulness, exterminate them. Who is your enemy? Your enemy is death and the grave. Let us never call any man, any woman our enemy. Those days are past. We are not Old Testament Jews. We are New Testament Christians. We call no man our enemy. We call no woman our enemy. Somebody shout at your preacher. Okay, we call no one our enemy. But death and hell and the grave and its master, hell yeah, they're our enemy. They are our enemy and God has killed them in Christ. This is the, somebody ought to shout at me in this house. God has killed them in Christ. This is the significance of the empty tomb. That's why Easter is such a big deal. Because when Jesus Christ rises again from death, He kills death once and for all. If you want help, remember that you are friends, point number eight, with the death killer. You're welcome. You're friends with the death killer. And so, it follows that if God has already killed death, then evil is living on borrowed time. I'll say it again. I can't see you smiling at me behind those masks. You gotta wave at me like it's Pentecostal church. When I say something that hits you in the heart, you gotta wave at me because I can't see you smiling. Right? If God has already killed death, somebody shout, then evil is living on borrowed time. My dear friends, I'm here to tell you that evil is living on borrowed time. You have all the time in the world because you belong to Jesus and he has risen from death as the first fruits of them that live. And that means that if you belong to him, one day you will rise too and you will never again taste death. You have all the time in the world. It's evil who is living on borrowed time. So the next time something evil happens to you, outlast it with the strength that God God supplies by His Holy Spirit, because I'm here to tell you today that evil's days are numbered, and here we come. Yeah, we can clap for that in this house. Evil's days are numbered, friend, and this brings me to my favorite point in this whole sweaty sermon. My, I wrote this point for my beloved Jared Irvin, for my dear Rich Brown, for my sweet Coach Mark. And for my brother, Aaron Fraser, I wrote this point for you. Point number nine, okay, point, receive it, Devin, you'll like this too. Point number nine, next time you're in trouble, because evil's days are numbered, next time you're in trouble, throw a party. Aren't you so glad you came to church? Just wait. I haven't even exegeted the passage yet. Yes, I'm so glad I came to church. Verse six, part A. Get a load of this: with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. You're like, what's the big deal? Well, nothing, except it's a free will offering. Wave at me if you know what a free will offering is. Okay, some of you know what it is. What's a free will offering? A freewill offering is a kind of peace offering. These offerings are outlined in Leviticus 7. A freewill offering is the kind of offering you bring after you already paid your tithes, after you already paid like your wave offering, right? You are already paid whatever offering is appropriate for the feast time of that year. This is an extra offering you bring because you're so happy about who God is and how good he's been to you. I mean, I might become a bit more of a prosperity preacher if I let myself. This is what a free will offering is. And isn't it so sad that so many Christians don't give to their churches at all? So sad. You're missing out on such an opportunity to experience the joy of God in a real way that will blow your mind. A free will offering is an offering you bring on top of your offering and receive it. It consists of a meal of a feast. It's a feast Jared and you bring it to the temple and after the priests take their portion and I will gladly eat anything. Aaron Fraser cooks for me anytime and I will with joy partake of anything. Richie Brown makes for me anytime and anything coach mark makes is better than anything i have ever made and so after i as a priest take my portion what do those families do with that free will offering they party with it they eat all of the rest of it in the presence of the lord and if it takes days they stay for days and everybody knows that the best kind of party is a party that lasts for days Somebody shout in this house. So the next time that evil comes knocking on your door, throw a party. Like Jared Irvin, like Rich Brown, like Coach Mark, like my brother Aaron Fraser. Got trouble? Party in Jesus' name. I mean, if that's not a church growth strategy, I don't know what is. But it's straight out of the Bible. And then verse 10, or point verse 10, I'm almost done. Embrace and or re-embrace the miracle of gratitude. I kid you not, as I wrote this sermon today, I shouted at Nikki when I got to this point. I said, oh, this is gonna become a book. I'm gonna write a book about this. Embrace or re-embrace the miracle of gratitude. The book will be called Thankful. Re-embracing the miracle of gratitude. Okay, it's a miracle. How do I know? Verse six, part B. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. We almost need to preach it. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Gratitude is godliness. Thanksgiving, rightly rooted in Christ, is the answer to stress, anxiety, and hopelessness. Are you feeling a little freer now that I've preached to you for 35 minutes? I hope so. Could you thank God for something if I prompted you to? As I thank God for some things, could you do the same even sitting there in your seats? Could you do the same sitting there at home? Thank you, Lord, for this sweaty auditorium that will one day be filled with 500 souls. Thank you, Lord, for cameras that will capture what we're doing here and send it all around the world so your people who are called by your name can taste and see that you are good. What are you thankful for? Thank you, Lord, for my children. Thank you, Lord, for my spouse. Thank you, Lord, for my singleness and the way in which you are teaching me to lean on you in these times. Thank you, Lord, for my job. Thank you, Lord, for this season of poverty and the way in which you're teaching me to trust you as I cannot help myself. What else are you thankful for? Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that comforts me in the midst of the dark night of my soul. Thank you, Lord, for the talent that you have poured into my life that I do not deserve. Thank you, Lord, for my career. Thank you, Lord, for the house in which I live. Thank you, Lord, for the clean water that runs through the piping underneath our feet in this beautiful city in Guelph. What else are you thankful for? Thank you, Lord, for turkey and roast beef. Thank you, Lord, for tofu and, I don't know, chicken fried rice. Thank you, Lord, for red wine. Thank you, Lord, for dancing. Thank you, Lord, for lakes and rivers. Thank you, Lord, for trees. Thank you, Lord, for... I could go on all night. When you become a person from whom... or receive it! Thankfulness flows like a river. You will find yourself enabled to deal with any stress, any anxiety, any hopelessness that comes your way. Embrace the miracle of gratitude. Point number 11, because it's already done. Somebody shout. It's already done. Worship team, come on back up on stage. I hope the sound system is working. Trisha, nod at me. It's going to work. Yes, Lord. Thank you for the fact that our sound and tech people brought the power back. All right? It's already done. Embrace the miracle of gratitude because it's already done. Point number 11. Let me read to you verse 7. I know I went overtime tonight. I was like, whatever. I don't care. I'm in Alabama. I'm going to preach till I sweat. Verse 7, for, receive it, Tracy, this is for you, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph upon my enemies. Here's what's beautiful about this, it works both ways, all right, receive, this should blow your mind. If David wrote this on the night he found himself entrapped by Saul's soldiers on both sides of the mountain. Then he was prophesying when he wrote this psalm. And he was prophesying by faith that his God would see him through. And wouldn't you know it, at the 11th hour, a messenger comes to Saul and tells him that the Philistines have invaded, and so Saul has to leave and David is saved. So if he wrote this on that night, then he was prophesying by faith. And it is beautiful as he sets his hope on something he hasn't seen yet. And if that's you today, I wanna encourage you to be biblical and to set your hope on something that you have not seen yet. Somebody say amen. It works both ways. If, oh, I got the Holy Ghost. Can you see my goosebumps? No, you can see my arms sweating. I have arm sweat, you're welcome. If David wrote Psalm 54 in his old age, Oh, I could shout! Then he's writing this looking back as an old man who was delivered from dire strait after dire strait. And I just finished 1 Chronicles this week and I read that David died, what? In a good old age full of years because his God was faithful. So if your rescue does not come until the end of your life, you're also still biblical. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Either way, the point is clear. Victory is your destiny. Somebody receive it right now. Victory is your destiny. He's already accomplished your deliverance from every trouble without exception. So, to recap, embrace your desperation, admit you can't save yourself call on the right name for salvation make sure you haven't functionally forgotten that he is mighty remember he is the help you're looking for remember that he is keeping score remember that he is the death killer and remember that your god loves parties so in light of all this embrace the miracle of gratitude because it's already done and that should help you with your hard times.